This is Paul Adamson, and welcome to In Conversation, the regular podcast of my online magazine, Encompass. I chat informally with personalities from a wide variety of backgrounds on a wide variety of subjects. If you like this podcast, you can go to the magazine's website, encompass-europe.com, or any of the main platforms for free access to all the podcasts to date. I hope you enjoy this conversation. My guest is Philip Stevens. Philip Stevens is the chief political commentator at the Financial Times, and his new book, Written Alone, will be published on the 28th of January. Welcome to the podcast, Philip. Thank you. Right. So you say uh, up front, uh, Philip, that uh, this book, Written Alone, is a story, quote, of inflated ambition and diminished circumstance, unquote. So what was your in real inspiration for wanting to write this book? Well, um, there are two sets of inspirations, really. Um, the first was personal. Um, my journalistic career proper, as it were, started in Brussels as a correspondent for Reuters um, in 1980, between 1980 and 1983. And so I saw close up from the beginning. That was the, you know, the battleground then was the British budget contribution. So I, but one of my the sort of first impressions I took as a, as a proper journalist was of this battle that we were having within Europe, a Europe we'd only recently joined. Um, the second part of the personal reason is that since then I've been covering in one way or another British politics for 30 odd years. I've seen four, I think, um, conservative leaders from Thatcher onwards, um, fall over Europe for one for one reason or another. Um, so I wanted to tell a story, at least for part of which I've been a sort of, I've had a ringside seat, as it were, um, as a journalist. Um, the second thing is because, uh, and I'm not sure why I've always regarded myself as a European, um, Perhaps because I have an Irish mother and Welsh father, I've never regarded myself as English, regarded myself as Brit British. And being British, European, Catholic, you know, these are all identities I found in, in myself have sat easily enough together. Um, the second thing I think is that I think bits of the story have been told in that there have been lots of wonderful books I think of Hugo Young's on our tortured relationship with Europe. Mm -hmm. There have been lots of books on the special relationship, um, but I couldn't find a book that tried to weave together, if you like, the various strands of our foreign policy since the war and try to get at the sort of underlying impulses, um, which basically brought us to where we were, but also brought us to Brexit. Right. For the benefit of the listeners, as you say in the introduction, to your book, this, it's bookended between Suez in 56 and the Brexit referendum in 2016. And I want to throw another quote at you straight off. You say, uh, hugging, quote, hugging America close while claiming a powerful voice in the councils of Europe was a precarious balancing act, but it provided leverage in both Washington and Brussels. The decision in 2016 to leave the European Union means Britain has to start again. What do you mean by that? What does that mean in practice, Britain starting again? Well, it's, it, it means casting again for, to find its place in the world, in a world in which big decisions are increasingly taken by either great powers or power blocks like the EU, 
where does Britain fit in this? We know what British interests are in a rules-based system and open trade, whatever. But how do we fit in the decision-making? And the point I think I make in the book is that we, after the disaster of Suez, when we had to give up thoughts of empire, we rushed into a very close relationship with the US, but quite quickly felt suffocated. We saw the success, belatedly, of the common market, as it was then called, and we joined. And so we built, a, 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 I think, a quite decent foreign policy, which said our security relationship is primarily with the US, but we have a big economic and political relationship with Europe. And we could leverage the one with the other. You know, we were more influential in Washington because the Americans knew that we had a voice in Brussels. And I would say we were more influential in Brussels because our partners knew that if necessary, we, you know, we could make a strong case in Washington. So we've blown up one of those pillars and we've done that at a time when the other pillar, the Atlanticist pillar, is itself looking rather fragile because America has been pulling away from the world. And I think even with Joe Biden, you know, the Atlanticism in American foreign policy has diminished and will continue to diminish. So where does this medium-sized European nation, which with lots to offer, I'm not, you know, defeatist about Britain at all, where do we, how do we exert that influence if we're not shaping European policy and we, as a consequence, don't have such a strong voice in Washington? Well, you point out uh, that, uh, of course, in the referendum campaign 2016, there were, in effect, two kinds of campaign, two blocks. One was the kind of outward-looking, global Britain, uh, free-trading nation, high seas, buccaneering, all that kind of rhetoric on the one hand. On the other hand, the kind of pull up the drawbridge, uh, let's say no to trade, let's say no to immigrants. And, of course, they were represented by the two different uh, campaign vehicles, if you like. Uh, I make the point because you say also that before... Britain can, can find a role, it has to find itself. Do you still think that Britain has this um, ambiguity about, it, about itself? It doesn't quite know what it wants to do in this post-Brexit world. Well, I think it does have this ambiguity. And, and in a way, I mean, what happened in the Brexit campaign is the Brexiters deliberately wouldn't discuss where Britain went next because they knew that would be the beginning of an argument. And we have this phrase, global Britain, but, you know, I talk to people in Whitehall in the Foreign Office and Cabinet Office and Number 10, try to get a clear, concise definition of what global Britain means. It means talking to everyone. Well, question, weren't we talking to everyone before? Does Germany need to leave the EU in order to export vast amounts to China or to have a good relationship with India? So what we have there is the this sort of nebulous reaching back to the 1950s when, in theory, as, as we thought before Suez, we could do what we wanted. We have that on one side. On the other side, we have this rather insular protectionist grouping built around, a lot of it built around econo our own economic failure in the north of England and the Midlands, saying the way is to shelter and be protectionist. Now, I don't think we'll go along the protectionist route, but I don't think we can transform ourselves into Singapore, and I don't think we can be global Britain.
I mean, the, the central fact of our foreign policy since the war has been that, relatively speaking, we've grown economically weaker and we haven't adjusted our international ambitions to, if you like, align with our relative economic strength. Is that what you mean? Because you make the you say there's nothing wrong with being nothing to be ashamed of in relative decline, but what really hurts is this notion of of absolute decline. Maybe go a bit further into that, please. Well, the reason we really, in the end, sort of scuttled into the EU and there was great urgency was, you know, we could see that we were, you know, that the Soviet Union and uh, the United States had pulled ahead during the war, and there was nothing we could do, and there was nothing to be ashamed of in that. But what was happening in the 50s and in the 60s was that our, if you like, our, you know, comparable nations in Europe, France and Germany, these are countries that we've always sort of measured ourselves, were moving ahead economically much faster as well in terms of productivity, investment, science and engineering. And that's, I think that's our problem. If, you know, if, if India and China and all these other nations grow and that makes us relatively smaller, that's no problem. It's when our economy, relative to comparator economies, begins to shrink. It seems quite extraordinary now because so many prime ministers in the, par in the past uh, have maybe slightly arrogantly and in, in a slightly delusional way of seeing the UK as this bridge between, as you say in, in the book, between the United States and, and Europe. Uh, and you quote Tony Blair as referring to the UK as a to the UK as a, as a pivotal power. It seems quite extraordinary in those circumstances that the UK has decided to leave and these pillars are now no longer in place. It is extraordinary. And the Americans were as shocked as anyone. And, you know, as you recall, uh, Obama actually came to London and said, you know, look, stay in because you'll be at the back of the queue for trade negotiations in Washington if you actually leave. The Americans from the beginning wanted us to join when Dean Acheson made his famous remark about, you know, us losing an empire and failing to find a role, he was egging us on to join the to join the then common market, and they wanted us to stay in. And we it has cost us influence, and it will continue to cost us influence. Now, you know, I don't think Joe Biden is going to um, is you know is going to basically try and punish. Boris Johnson for being such a pal of Donald Trump. But I think power relationships will take Biden to Berlin, not to London. Right. To be fair, in case the listeners think why well, you and I are being a bit too negative and, 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 and country bashing, you do say also that uh, um, Britain still remains a significant power. It's six or seventh in economic rankings, uh, taking on international responsibilities and impressive uh, a budget uh, on uh, development, uh, even though it's been re reduced recently by the Chancellor Exchequer. Uh, uh, great diplomacy, great networks, and all that kind of stuff. One could also add this year, in, for topical reasons, it's presidency of the COP26, presidency of the G7. So, to, and obviously, UN, a permanent member of the Security Council, UN, a leading player, a member of NATO. So, all these things together. So, it's not quite such a a, a desolate picture that maybe that you and I are guilty of, of, of painting? No, I don't think it's, I, I'm not, you know, at all um, pessimistic about Britain, um, nor do I try and downplay its strength. I mean, I think that's what makes it more frustrating. If you see, if you believe, as I do, that Britain has 
quite a lot to offer the world in terms of its diplomacy, uh, its military power from time to time, sometimes too often, but from time to time, its development aid, its culture, its soft power, and we are, you know, a big economy. So if you like, I'm passionately pro-European because Europe was the way that we could actually best express and deploy those strengths. So it's not a question of, you know, take away Europe and you take away Britain's strengths. But what you do take away is the platform on, upon which we could both, we could best deploy those strengths, you know, our, our values, our commitments to the rule of law, to a rules-based system. Now, we can still contribute. We'll contribute through the G7. Hopefully, um, we'll contribute through COP and we'll contribute in, in the Security Council. The problem is we won't do so effectively as, um, as we did when we were a member of the EU. And the economic cost of leaving the EU not instantly, but over a period of 10 or 15 years, will diminish our, our power, it will diminish our economic power. You know, if you say, look, it'll knock a quarter of a percent a year off growth, it doesn't sound a lot, you know, over two or three years. Over 10 or 15 years makes a huge difference to the relative economic strengths of a country. Right. Well, let's start then talking about to uh, talk about the Britain relations with uh, with the United States and Europe in this post Brexit world. On the U.S. side, the obviously imminent arrival in the White House of, of Joe Biden. Um, we know all know about his uh, so-called maybe not so much strained relations relations with with Boris Johnson, but maybe not quite as warm as they as they might be. But in in the world of realpolitik, will the so-called special relationships uh, survive? Uh, whoever, which personalities are in Downing Street and the White House? Well, I think if we're sensible, we'll stop calling it a special relationship. <laughs> um, as an American diplomat said to me, not well, quite a little while ago now, you know, the thing is that um, uh, for you, it's a special relationship. We have lots of special relationships. <laughs> and, uh, I think it was Helmut Schmidt who once said quite a long time ago that... Um, uh, the relationship's so special, only one side knows it exists. <laughs> but uh, that's, but I mean, for the Americans, you know, it's always been a question of national interest. You know, hard-headed, they have had, they have seen a strong national interest in being close with us, in terms of politically, but also militarily, in terms of the intelligence. I think that will continue. But again, the Americans will be trying to evaluate if they want something done in Europe. When the Amer you know, if there if there is to be a really serious climate change agreement um, this year or or later, it's basically going to be about China, Europe, and the U.S. setting up in place a framework which others then join up to. So where does where are we in that? Where is the U.K. in that? Um, if there's going to be, you know, if there are going to be agreements on, you know, if we talk about, say, digital standards, who's going to set them over the next decade? Again, it's going to be the US, China, or in my view, I hope, Europe and the US together. Again, Britain will have a voice and it'll have a serious voice, but it's not going to be the first voice that Washington listens to. 
And, and therefore, do you think that, um, but is that, that, that said, do you think there's scope for some kind of reset of relationship then maybe on the, on the British side, a final recognition that a special relationship is not quite so special, but since we are now more demandeur maybe in this relationship, we should just recalibrate and uh, maybe lower expectations what we expect uh, from relations with Washington. Well, I would hope that what's going on in Whitehall now, and I'm sure it is, is that people are looking about looking and saying, look, what can we offer the Americans that's also in our interests that will keep the Americans interested in us, as it were? So what can we do with the Americans that, you know, that will, that will cement that relationship? I think for the next two or three years, not a lot's going to happen. Basically, I think, as I say, the focus for the Americans this year is going to be on Europe and China, uh, Europe and climate change, and Europe and trade. And those are all, you know, power in, in, in those areas are, is with the EU27. We can help and, you know, perhaps we can you know, use our diplomacy, the strength of the foreign office to act as sort of agents, as it were, you know, mm-hmm. to, 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 Bro- to brokers in the middle of this, yeah. in this game. And I'm sure we'd be very good at that. Um, but we're not going to be, you know, at the front of the table, as it were. Well, how about then UK's relationship with, with EU27? Uh, you, you do say that in, in the book, engagement with Europe will remain a sine qua non of national prosperity. And we are, we are destined, or some would say doomed, to carry on talking to our European partners post-Brexit because there's so much unfinished business on the one hand and maybe also a vague desire, hopefully a stronger desire over time to, to reconnect and to establish new forms of, of, of working relationship, if you like. So... So how do you think those, those relationships will, maybe, the, maybe it's too soon to tell just now, it's only a couple of weeks since the end of the transition, but nonetheless, how do you think those relations could be um, developed in the future once the kind of some of the dust has settled, as it were? Yeah, well, we can't change the facts of geography <laughs> or of economics. And the facts of geography and economics say that our biggest economic relationship, trade, investment, and the rest, is going to remain with the EU 27 uh, by a long way. And, you know, we will, when we've sort of woken up to some of the, you know, the fantasies that uh, have been peddled about, you know, making, I don't know, Indonesia, you know, the the, the market of of the 2020s, um, we will readjust to that. I think personally, I think, this particular government will find it difficult to do because having taken us through Brexit, they, it won't want to admit mistakes. But I think over time, business and different politicians will recognise that. So on the economic side, I would hope, you know, there will be a coming together, a filling out of the economic agreement over a period. I'm talking, you know, five, ten years. I'm not talking next year, the year after. Um, the big gap in the agreement, of course, is foreign policy and security, mm-hmm. where Britain stood back completely and said, we don't want anything to do with with um, with the EU on this. We want to do it bilaterally. I think uh, I was listening the other day to um, a French minister say, well, you know, there is a there's another position where, you know, Britain could be part of a European, the 
European Security Council that's been proposed by Paris, mm -hmm. which will include members and non-members. So there are bridges that can be built, I think, on foreign policy and security. And I think they will be, because once again, if you look at, if you draw up a list of the security concerns of, of the British government, you know, from jihadi terrorism to proliferation to uncontrolled migration, uh, they're identical, mm. the security concerns of our European partners. So the idea that we should be tackling them separately it's crazy. So, so I, I think that common sense will always prevail. It sometimes takes time. What happened after, you know, Suez was a comparable mistake, but it took a new government after Suez to basically shift the policy back to a or to a position uh, that was a more that had a more rational calculation of our national interest. Do, do you know why the, the UK was so adamant about not including foreign security uh, matters in the negotiations? Because it, it seemed you know, before, when we were still a member, well, one could have bilateral relations. The E3 is, is a good example of that, as well as being full member of the EU and, and helping to prosecute a, a European so-called foreign policy. So why did they opt out as it were, in these negotiations? Because this government, and even more so a large section of its backbench MPs, are theologically allergic to doing any, to coming to any agreements with the EU per okay. se, as opposed to members of the EU. So, you know, this, this ridiculous sense that if we, you know, if we go to meetings of, you know, political cooperation meetings or, um, and after all, it was actually Margaret Thatcher who set up, who, who actually gave a great push to, to political cooperation in the EU. One of the ironies is forgotten by the Brexiters, but they're allergic to it. Now, I think that the edge will be worn off that sort of, you know, theological, ideological purity over time um, and with a different set of, you know, people and a, a different, you know, a slight change in worldview. I think we will be driven back into... Uh, a position where we say, you know, we'll do some things bilaterally with the French, as we did before, but we should do some things with the EU. You know, our concerns about the Mediterranean are the same concerns as the EU's. You know, when we, when now Home Secretary talks about, you know, stopping people coming across the channel, what she's really talking about is stopping people coming across the Mediterranean. Right. I press you on this a bit because you do say in the book that uh, those looking for a single word, I'm quoting obviously, to define the weaknesses of British foreign and defence policy after 1945 could not improve on the word overreach. Do you think the UK is still guilty of overreach, which kind of uh, conjures up uh, visions of maybe delusions of grandeur as well? Well, I fear that this particular government, with its talk of going back east of Suez, and sending our aircraft carrier to patrol the South China Sea to ensure it, it to guarantee freedom of navigation. That is what I call overreach. I mean, clearly we have an interest in um, in freedom of navigation across the world. We've always sent warships to that part of the world. 
but trying to suggest that we now we can reinvent ourselves as an Indo-Pacific power when we ha had to in, in 1970, we gave all that up. We realized that that was an overextension then. Um, that was overreach. And if it was overreach in 1970, I think it's also overreach in 2020. Okay. A final question then to round off, Philip. Um, it, when the paperback edition of this book comes out, which is sure to do, because I'm sure the hardback sales will justify that, would you have to retitle the book, uh, not Britain alone, but England alone? Well, that's the, that's the fear, I think, of everyone um, who uh, values Britain as a, its own union of nations. We're not, you know, we sometimes talk about Britain as a nation. It's not. It's a union of nations and the province of Northern Ireland. Um, there is, in my view, a real danger that Scotland will decide that having been wrenched out of the EU against its will, it voted heavily to remain in the EU, it would prefer to leave Britain and join Europe. One of the reasons I hope that we can, if you like, re begin to re-establish a closer relationship with the rest of Europe quite quickly is to demonstrate to Scotland that actually this is not going to be a divorce in which neither partner ever speaks to each other again. It's going to be one of those divorces where you remain friends and you know jointly share future enterprises. But yes, uh, there is a real risk that sometime in the next five to 10 years, Scotland will vote to leave uh, the union. And I, I think at the end, at the very end of the book, I, I write, you know, is it going to be England alone? And that would be a real tragedy. Okay. Well, we have to leave it there. Philip Stevens, thank you very much for your time.